So let us uh, now open the session for questions. Do you have anything specifically about what we've discussed? Yes? Ah, much better. Uh, this question is about what we have discussed yesterday. Uh, we were speaking about uh, different types of objects and the first uh, uh, were the imputed objects or imputation. Is it Sanskrit prapancha? Uh, no. No, that is, uh, there are various terms. Uh, vilkalpa is usually the one. Uh, prapancha is uh, uh, mental fabrication. Someone else in the back row? I also have uh, two quite uh, complicated and maybe interesting questions here. Somebody send it to me if you Fine, like. after these two. Okay. Uh, so the question is uh, on yesterday's table on imputation, mental designation, uh, mental labeling and designation, namely what are the differences between them? I only understood that uh, imputation can be both conce conceptual and non-conceptual and mental labeling and designation are only conceptual. But besides that, I don't see the difference and also what what are this uh, referent object and the referent thing or focal uh, basis or what um, like what are they and how are they uh, correlated with the basis for them if we look at this issue of these three terms in uh, the context of Sautrantika perhaps they make a little bit more sense in Sautrantika, we made the difference 
where we make the difference between objective uh, reality, well, objective entities and so-called metaphysical entities. Sometimes that's translated as individually characterized and generally characterized, but uh, this is uh, basically objective and metaphysical. When we talk about a uh, imputation on a basis for imputation, then each of these can be known non-conceptually. You can actually see it. And each of these actually do something. They're functional phenomenon. So a hand picks up something, and a person picks up something. Actually, objectively, that's happening, and we can see it. And if we uh, see through the window just a part of the body walking past, it's not just the part of the body. The whole body is an implication on the parts. The whole body is walking by. It's objective fact. Now, mental labeling and with categories or concepts, another way of looking at it, and designation with words only occur in conceptual cognition. Categories don't do anything. They're a static phenomenon. Uh, words, names, I mean, they're not exactly the same as the sounds that represent them. But uh, the uh, uh, words, you know, giving names to things and so on, that also is conceptual. It's not in objective reality, so to say. So conceptually, we put things together into a group. You have to have a category of a group that everything, that things that are similar fit into. That's conceptual. It's not objectively out there. And it's easiest to understand this when we look at uh, emotions. We all feel all sorts of things all the time, don't we? Emotions. But how do we understand them? We have certain categories like loving someone, liking someone. These are concepts. These are categories. On the uh, there are different ways of understanding this in the different tennis systems, so I don't want to jump completely to Prasangika. Be careful. But uh, I feel something, some emotion. But uh, then we fit that. What do I feel? How do I understand that? So we have categories in which we fit. We, we make little uh, pieces out of what we're feeling. And we say, OK, part of that is an emotion. And we have a word for it. So we have a category, love. And everybody feels different things at different times. And even we feel different emotions at different times. So the emotions, I mean, what we feeling, what we feel are objective, that's objective reality, feeling something. But within the realm of our conceptual thinking, we conceptualize it as being fitting in this category or that category. And this category we call love, and this category we call liking. So what uh, what and 
these category, the, the word is, is, label, is designated on the category, and the category mm -hmm. is labeled on what I'm feeling. So that's optional. You don't have to do that. <clears throat> that's the big point. Dog doesn't do that. Dog still feels, you know, like your master and lick, you know, and all of that. Dog still has feelings. But dog doesn't conceptualize it as, I'm, you know, I really like my master, you know, and has a word for it. I really love my master. I think that's an important point. Mental labeling and designation is optional. So you have all these, emo you know, feeling something, and we have these categories labeled on them. So what is love? Love is the referent object of this category when it is labeled optionally on something that I'm feeling. I'm feeling something and I fit it in the category of love and what is love? Well, love is the referent object of that, you know, what it refers to, what the category refers to on that basis. And the object or the meaning of the word is that is what it refers to, what it means to, what it means. Uh, the referent object, I'm sorry. So the issue that is discussed in the tenet systems, Trantika, Chittamatra, Svatantrika, Prasangika, is how do things fit into categories? How does it fit into the category of a thing, a knowable thing, a knowable object? Is there, I mean, there's a defining characteristic that uh, the emotions have. Otherwise, you couldn't distinguish one emotion from another. But does that characteristic then within the whole range of our emotions encapsulate one of them as love and another one as liking? It's even more basic than that. Does it encapsulate it just as a thing? Does it encapsulate it as a thing that then fits into this category or that category? And does it also empower it to be an appropriate basis for being called love or liking? So, so much of the logic is involved with uh, trying to distinguish between the basis for labeling and what the label refers to. In other words, the basis for what the category is projected onto and what the category actually refers to. And this is debated and discussed and refined in the tenant systems. So remember, I mean, I just, what I just spoke, what I just said was very rough. What we're talking about is how do you establish the existence of something? So how do you establish the existence of something of, of love, you know, of things? And in objective reality, are things divided, you know, with uh, plastic around them or not? This well, is an issue. Where is the boundary between the atoms in your body, in the body, and the atoms in the air? Where exactly do you draw the boundary? And is there a plastic, is there a wall dividing it? Is there actually a barrier that divides 
love and liking, which is a very interesting issue. I, I like to choose that example because people have a lot of difficulty. You know, I like you, but I don't really love you. And now I love you. Well, how did it cross the, the, the borderline? Where was the border? Well, there's a certain defining characteristic of love and a certain defining characteristic of like. You can find it in the dictionary. So based on the dictionary, I can distinguish between the two. <laughs> but what's really going on? You know, what is love and what is liking? These are the issues that we're talking about in these tennis systems. So I think the basic difference then between imputation and on the one side and labeling and designation on the other is not just that uh, uh, imputation, uh, imputation phenomenon can be seen, it can be heard, and so on. And the others are only occur in conceptual thought, but that uh, the imputations are factual, what Sautrantikos would say, objective reality, and the other is mental labeling and designation are optional. It's conceptual. You can do it or not. So we try to understand what we experience. And we experience so many things. So does the dog. Experience so many things every moment. And we try to understand what we're experiencing. What are we talking about? I like you, and now I love you. Or I like you, but I don't really love you. How do I understand? What is going on with that? And this is a problem for many of us. Is liking or loving just something that exists in my head? Or am I actually feeling something? This is what we're analyzing with these tennis systems. Is there something on the side of what I'm feeling that makes it love and and makes it liking? Or is it just in my head? And if I stopped calling it anything, does that mean that I don't feel anything? I am feeling something, though. So we have conventions. Conventions deal with words and categories, concepts. It allows us to communicate with other people. And it allows us to make what we experience a little bit more understandable to ourselves. So we have a convention of love, and we have a convention of like, and we have words for it. And it helps in our relationship that I can tell you, I like you, but I don't really love you. And it affects our behavior when we analyze ourselves. Do I really just like this person, or do I love them? So the tenant systems analyze what's going on here. And we can understand it more and more progressively, deeply. And I think what you can take home from this uh, series of talks is just, uh, you know, if you can take this much at home, it's been very successful, which is to understand what are the issues that we are talking about with these tenant systems and why are, is it a relevant thing to think about and to analyze. We're in a relationship, and what am I feeling? We're trying to understand it. Well, to understand it, we have to put it into categories and words. This is what we're trying to analyze. How does that work? Is it real? Is my love for you real? 
how do I know that it's real? What would make it real? Just saying? I mean, this is our misconceptions. If I say it, it makes it real. Does that establish that it's real? If you say to me enough times, I love you, does that make it real? Does that establish it? We're never secure enough. They always want them to say it again. It's not enough to say it once. This is exactly the problem. How do I establish? What will prove that you love me? Is it that you say I love you? And if you don't say it, that you don't love me? Is it that you give me flowers and that proves that you love me? Is it that you remember my birthday and you didn't remember my birthday, so that means that you don't love me? These are the issues that the four tenant systems help us to understand and to overcome the misconceptions that we have of how do you prove that something is real, that something exists, helps us to rid ourselves of the problems that come from that misconception, that misunderstanding, that unawareness, that what we imagine is false. No such thing. It's impossible that saying I love you actually establishes and makes the love, the love real. It's absurd. It doesn't have that power. So if we can understand what the issue is and the relevance of this issue in our personal lives, that's enough as a start. Then, when you really become interested and see the relevance of this issue, then you start to analyze. And the tenet systems gives us a systematic way of analyzing and deconstructing our misconceptions. <clears throat> Excuse me, I took up the whole half hour <laughs> with one thing. That's my bad habit. But uh, perhaps we can extend the question period and I will exercise, try to exercise self-control and answer <laughs> questions briefly. Someone had a question in the back. Uh, the question is about the defining characteristic marks of the things. Are they the same as uh, basis for labeling or they are more uh, like the referent object? Uh, the defining characteristic, uh, there's a defining, this is a very big issue. The defining character, there is a defining characteristic of the basis of labeling and there is a defining characteristic of the referent object. And 
the question is, especially when we speak about a person, where is that defining characteristic located? So some tenant systems will say that it's located, that uh, the defining characteristic of a person is, like the void Pashkas will say, is just in the person. It's not in the basis, the five aggregates. That's why you can uh, cognize, you can see a person self-sufficiently. You don't have to see the basis because the defining characteristic is in the person, on the e side of the person. So Trantiga says the defining characteristic of a person is on the side of mental consciousness. So mental consciousness has both the defining characteristic of mental consciousness as well as the defining characteristic of a person. Because even if I only see your head, there has to be mental consciousness there, otherwise uh, you're not alive. So that basis for imputation, I mean the uh, basis that has the, the defining characteristic of a person is always there. So that's why it's imputedly knowable, the person. And uh, Chittimatra would say that the defining characteristic of a person is on the side of uh, foundation consciousness or storehouse consciousness, alia vinyana. And that has the defining characteristic of both itself and a person. And that's always there. And Svatantrika says, goes back to the Sautrantika position. It's on the side of mental consciousness. And Prasangika says that it's not at all on the basis of, on the uh, basis for labeling. And even in terms of the referent object itself, a person, that uh, you can't even find it on the side of the person. It is basically nothing other, there is a defining characteristic and you can only specify it as being nothing other than itself. When you mentally exclude everything that it's not, this is what it is, but you can't actually point at the thing itself and saying this is what makes it what it is, a person. And the defining characteristic of the person then does not uh, no, exist There anywhere. is a defining characteristic, but you can't locate it anywhere. Ah, right. It's not findable. You can't find it on the side of the referent object. You can't find it on the side of the basis for labeling, designation. <laughs> After all, defining characteristics, definitions are just conventions. A group of people got together and defined what is love and what is liking, and they put it in a dictionary. Just a convention. Nevertheless, these defining characteristics as conventions allow us to communicate and understand things. Okay, two questions, hopefully short, then we'll have our break. Uh, I don't know if it uh, directly refers to the uh, topic. So the first question is, why if we understand uh, voidness directly, we purify lots of karma? That's a complicated question. Short answer. When we understand voidness, we get rid of our not understanding how things exist or understanding incorrectly. When we understand incorrectly, we have disturbing emotions. When we have disturbing emotions, they activate the so-called seeds or tendencies of karma. And that produces more suffering, rebirth, etc. when they're activated. So basically, 
what we want to do is stop the whole mechanism that would activate any karmic tendencies. That's how you get liberated. Then the not yet happening ripening of it can no longer happen. Can no longer be, I'm sorry, can no longer become a presently ripening, presently happening, ripening. And the second question is, uh, when we speak about the direct understanding or direct realization of voidness, is it just a very deep type of uh, being aware of uh, the lack of inherent existence of things and also the dependent arising? Or is it something yet other? First of all, it's less confusing if we don't use the words direct or indirect. We're talking about conceptual or non-conceptual. Conceptual means through the medium of a category. We have a category voidness, we have a word voidness that's designated to this category. And we sit in meditation and we realize something and we, what am I realizing? That's voidness. So we fit it into the category voidness. That's conceptual. Right? Now I've got it, you know. <laughs> One second before I didn't have it and now I have it and it fits into this category. And whether we call it with a, in our minds with a word or not doesn't matter. Designation is optional. Non-conceptual, you're not fitting it into a category. You don't have to do that. You might start doing that and then get rid of the category. But as long as we are thinking of it in the category of voidness, that's conceptual. And when we have total absorption, which means with perfect shamatha and vipassana, you know, I mean, absolute fantastic, you know, concentration and understanding all the details. When we have that total absorption, we're only focused on no such thing. No such thing as this impossible way of establishing that, that things exist. No. You know, that, wait, that uh, um, I thought that if you said I love you, that really ma makes your love real. And I understand there's no such thing. That's impossible. That can't possibly make, you know, love real. There's no such thing. And that's a total absorption on this non-implicative negation. I thought you were the perfect partner, the prince or princess on the white horse, and there's no such thing. There's no such thing. You can't possibly exist like that. Nobody can possibly exist like that. Then, after that total absorption, you're still in meditation, or it could last after the meditation, but starts, you're still in meditation. You have what's called the subsequent attainment or subsequent realization. Uh, sometimes that's called post-meditation, but it's not, that could be very easily misunderstood. You're still in meditation. So it's subsequent to that total absorption. What do you attain? What understanding do you attain? That's literally what the word is referring to. It is that now that uh, now you appear to be the prince or princess on the white horse. It appears like that, but implicitly, in other words, that voidness doesn't appear, but implicitly I understand that it's not like that. Implicitly I understand there's no such thing. There's no such way to establish your existence, no such way of existing as being the prince or princess. 
So I understand dependent arising, that you arise as prince or princess. Uh, I mean, it appears like that because there's this concept, this category, prince and princess, on the white horse. I might have learned it from a fairy tale, and you know, it refers to what seems to appear, but it, it doesn't really exist like that. So we can use dependent arising as the line of reasoning for understanding voidness, right? The idea of, a, of a, a prince or a princess on the white horse comes from a fairy tale. It's arisen dependently on that, blah, blah, blah. Then I focus on no such thing, but Tsongkhapa says that's not enough because you might go to the nihilist uh, position to say, that, well, there's, there's no, you know, I'm not even experiencing anything. So then you have to have the subsequent realization that, in fact, it is dependently arising, what I, what I am experiencing. That, because, that it's void of truly existing, of being real, not real, but of being truly established, but nevertheless, it arises dependently, and that's what I'm experiencing. Tsongkhapa wrote that uh, you only have the correct understanding of voidness when you understand that it does not contradict or negate dependent arising, that this arises from that. And remember, he emphasized this because of ethics, that uh, if you act in this way, it's going to cause this type of uh, uh, problem. So he wanted to make sure that people really understood that. Okay, let's end here. We'll have our break, and then we'll continue in 15 minutes.